0: Good morning, Deep. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, I'm good. Where are you taking the call from? <laughs> Where are you right now? I'm in Assam, Jorhat.
1: Good, good. I like all the trophies in the background. Oh,
0: please ignore that. Let me change the background. <laughs> That's not what I wanted you to look at. That's very embarrassing. No, no,
1: it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> I'll show you my background. It's, it's my children's bedroom, so you can see my <laughs> There's a nice basketball (laughs) hoop on the door. Welcome back to No Cost Extension. My guest today is Deep Jyoti Sonu Brahma, the founder and director of Farm to Food Foundation, an organization based in Assam that engages young people in farm and food entrepreneurship with the long-term goal of making communities self-reliant and sustainable. Deep also sits on the investment committee of the Rebuild India Fund, and a few months ago, we traveled together visiting multiple NGO leaders who are doing amazing work across the Northeast. While I've worked in this sector for nearly 25 years, I realized my ignorance. And through these interactions, I began to learn about the distinctiveness that exists, taking into account multiple cultures and geographies. This requires a unique lens to effectively support NGOs in this region. Great. To begin with, I guess, I wanna start by just saying thank you for allowing us as Dasara and colleagues of mine that are part of the Rebuild India team to visit a region of India that we are still, as Dasara, fairly unfamiliar with. And that region is the Northeast. And I think every day we had with you was a learning experience for sure. And so, for example, even calling the region the northeast and realizing every state and even within the state there's so much diversity that a one-size solution does not make sense so i think to start i'd just love to hear a little bit about the region overall what you think about it what are some of the misconceptions that you feel people may have about that region as well as if you can go into a little bit of detail about the diversity that exists there as well and why certain solutions that work in certain areas of the Northeast may not be
0: relevant in the rest of India or even vice versa. Of course, uh, I mean, it's a mistake to use the word Northeast region because Northeast region itself is such a diverse pool of uh, state, community, languages. Like we have more than 200 spoken languages and of course, and then several versions of dialects around it. Although we have eight states, but in each of these states, we have different ethnic communities living together. So when you came to the Northeast, you were there in Shillong and Imphal and other places, you saw that ethnically, we are very different. The food that we eat is very, very diverse, very localized, very different. We are really, really proud of our own culture, our own traditions and the structure and the the system that we have been carrying, the, the history that we have been carrying. Having said that, you know, the region also has been facing lots of challenges in terms, not just the ethnic conflict that the region has gone through, not just the separatist conflict that the region has gone through, but the region is also facing lots of climate challenges. Assam, for example, has been, you know, the flood is part of our life here in Assam. But over the years, this pattern of flood has become very, very irregular. There are lacks and lacks of people who become climate refugees in their own land. They have been losing their agriculture land, their home, their schools, and they are forced to live in a refugee center, in a shelter, in a very, very dehumanizing situation. We also have communities, like for example, the tea garden communities, who were forced long time back to migrate all the way up here in Assam from the Nagpur Plateau of India and were forced to work in a very very difficult circumstances in the tea garden areas. Then we have in the hills in the mountain region we have communities who are over the years has become extremely vulnerable. There are some communities whose population is probably around five hundred to six hundred to about thousand extremely vulnerable group. There are because of the erratic rainfall, you know, the entire food system that we used to be, entire forest and ecology system that we were dependent upon, is also going through a major shift. And because of which, you know, our own culture, our own uh, engagement with our resources, local resources, or ecology, or environment, or forest, is changing very, very rapidly.
1: When we were there with you a few weeks ago, we met probably about 50 different organizations representing hundreds of communities that they serve. And I know one of the things that we spoke about in particular in Guati was around, as it related to climate, individuals and communities that live in and around rivers. And there was a conversation about the riverbanks. I think if you can talk a little bit about that, because I feel like that this is something that Again, everyone knows climate change is real. It's happening. Like you were saying, floods have always happened. In fact, I was surprised a few years ago to realize that while the rest of India calls it monsoon season, you have literally flood season. It's not even monsoon because that is what happens. But if you can tell us a little bit about what has been the effect of more recent
0: climate change to
1: communities who live in and around the rivers.
0: Very important to talk about the impact of climate when you talk about Northeast region. And traditionally the flood system in Assam, because of this flood system, because of this river system, Assam has one of the most fertile land we had here in this part of the world. And in fact, many people are surprised when I tell them that Kajiranga reserve forest has survived and grown because of you know, the regular flood that used to come. Because this flood water, you know, fills up the ponds and lakes of the forest and also cleans up the forest and provides life to the entire Kajiranga forest. Not just Kajiranga forest, many, many other forests around the banks of this amazing river system that we have. And similarly, there were, communities like missing community out there living on the banks of river their life used to revolve around the river you know they used to depend on on the floods they used to depend on the river for giving them life giving them food there was a beautiful pattern and system to it now because of this climate change that has come very suddenly and very, very rapidly, and increasingly becoming more and more unpredictable. Communities' engagement with the river has broken. Their relationship with the river system has broken. Their relationship with the flood system has broken. Some people say that it's a sign of development that these communities now have concrete houses, They have concrete buildings. They are moving out of agriculture and working in cities and urban areas. Earlier, missing community used to dwell on bamboo stilt houses, which was very easy to manage during the flood season. Now, because of the concrete building, they're losing their houses. Many schools have also been swept away in the flood. It's very difficult for them to live during the flood time. Similarly, because we are trying to embank the rivers, now river water has to flow somewhere. right? Now, because of concrete embankment in certain areas, now the river water is expanding in all those areas where water never used to go. And because of that, people who were not used to flood water are now facing this sudden onslaught of floods. and when the flood comes along with that disaster also happened. You know, the other interesting thing that I was reading up to yesterday's newspaper is that there was a census done on the water bodies. And we found out that in Assam, particularly in Assam, apart from the rivers and you know other big water bodies, the smaller lake and all, almost 98%, 95% of these small ponds and lakes are now owned by private individuals. And only about three or four percent are owned by the community, the society and the larger people. Now, earlier, what was happening was that it was the other way around. It was a community property. It was a society's property. So everybody used to take care of the lake, the water system, the water bodies in the villages, in and around the forest. And therefore, each and everyone used to have a relationship with the water body, relationship with the forest, relationship with man, animal, trees, mountain, river, everything, you know, everything around them. And that was a very beautiful, holistic relationship that it was not anthropocentric, you know, the forest. And the environment was in the center. And human beings were part of that entire ecosystem. Now, the kind of development that we are seeing is, is pushing that narrative out and bringing the ethnocentric approach. And because of that, now we are chopping off forests to set up agriculture land, to set up cities and urban areas. And that has seen a devastating
1: impact in the Nazi. No, they, And in hearing you speak about this, it reminds me of when we were outside of Shillong, visiting communities which have been supported by Nespas. And I think the village we went to also had 31 different species of rice. One village. And so if you can talk a little bit more about the relationship again with community and land and how the indigenous communities of the world protect some 80 to 90% of our biodiversity. That would be fantastic.
0: The amount of biodiversity that we have in the region is mind-blowing. You know, even farm-to-food, what we have been doing is trying to revive some of these indigenous varieties of food, the forest food mainly. So, you know, one interesting aspect of our Bihu, now this still we have the you know, one of the most colorful and joyful and feasting bihu. And lots of bihu dance also happens during this period. There is this tradition of serving 101 varieties of vegetables and herbs to the guests. And the constituent of this 101 varieties of vegetables and herbs keeps changing, you know, after every few miles. So you can imagine the amount of diversity Uh, required for such changes to happen. But over the years, we have forgotten how to identify these vegetables and herbs. We have forgotten how to engage with the forest. We are becoming slowly and slowly more dependent on the market. And therefore, we are losing touch with, you know, what's around us. We are losing touch with our traditional varieties of resources that we have around that. And therefore, organizations like netpires organizations like farm to Food, even a friend of mine Samir bodola he is also working on forest food so there are many organizations doing some wonderful work around bringing back those traditional food system and also not just bringing it back onto the table but also building a relationship reviving those relationships with the local food and making people proud of their own heritage and traditional system. But along with that, there is also this effort to ensure that whatever conversations that we are having about the food system, there is a certain scientific basis also. So when I'm saying that these are some of the 25 or 30 varieties of local herbs and vegetable that needs to be consumed that needs to be served at the midday meals in school, that needs to be served at home. There are also scientific nutritional mapping that has been done by Assam Agriculture University's food science department who have come up with a beautiful booklet. Even Nesfas has come up with an amazing booklet on the nutritional value of each of these traditional foods. In fact, I remember there was this person who had put up a picture of local variety of herb, probably on one of the social media page. And suddenly he gets a call all the way from USA saying that he has seen this picture. Can we request you to supply us this herbs? Because we found out that it has got one of the highest nutrition value and we want to do a commercial marketing of this product. And we were very surprised to see that that you know it is quite in high in demand. But at the same time we are also cognizant of the fact that the products that we have in the forest, the product that we have around us, the local resources, may not be enough to do a commercial engagement. You know, we do not produce huge amount of any product to be commercially successful. We grow enough to sustain us and happily sustained us rather than, you know, uh, become commercially rich. Uh,
1: yeah, what was clear to me in visiting the Northeast was each community is so spread apart and transportation going from one place to the next. And so these large models of community kitchens in a manner that has 10, 15, 20 million people in a city make a lot of sense. But they don't make sense when you're in more rural settings with lesser populations. And so if you can speak a little bit about your own organization, Farm to Food, how did it start? How are you bringing some of these principles of indigenous foods to the table and engaging children and youth at an early stage while of course providing them nutrition? Uh, that, that would be very helpful.
0: Our ancestor had believed that too much of everything is bad. So you would see that the region also has been practicing zoom cultivation. And zoom cultivation is not just about slashing, chopping down the forest, burning it, and then doing the farming there. It is about mindfully clearing a small space, small patch of forest land to do farming, to do mindful farming. And then, after some point of time, moving out of that place. So that the land has enough time to regenerate itself, you know, and that was the mindful engagement our ancestors had built. Of, you know, do not we were told not to focus on increasing the number, but focus on increasing the diversity, even in our agriculture pattern, in the, even in our cropping. You know, so when in the paddy field, you will see that there is rice growing. But there are also lots of amazing, nutrition-filled herbs, as well as there are fish in the paddy field. So it is providing you a holistic nutrition supply. So before we started farming the food, we were figuring out what you know what are some of the big challenges the region is going through, and what could be the possible solutions of it. figured out that like i said northeast is blessed with one of the most fertile land but at the same time the affinity toward agriculture among young people are slowly slowly disappearing even with not just with young people but even parents even the farmers who are doing probably earning lots of money through agriculture would be happy to send their children away from agriculture would be happy to see that their children are working in some other MNCs or government jobs, I mean, there's nothing wrong in those aspirations, but but you know, we also need food. Somebody needs to grow those food. Somebody needs to grow food in a very very mindful approach, and that's where we thought, why not create an enabling environment to inspire young people toward a career of agri-entrepreneurship. And when we talk about agri-entrepreneurship, it is not just about providing the skills of agriculture and entrepreneurship. It is also a lot to do with the mindset. And mindset formation happens at a very early age in school space. In the school space, young people are exposed to education, exposed to the world outside. They may not be physically exposed, but yeah, they're exposed through books and stories and the teaching system that they undergo in the school and colleges. They are exposed to the world outside. And that's where in schools and college, career aspirations also begins to develop. And therefore, we thought, why not introduce agri entrepreneurship in the school itself? At the same time, we were also cognizant of the fact that there are certain needs in schools and colleges. One of the first needs, is the health. They will still have one of the highest number of young people who are suffering from anemia. Maternal mortality rate is one of the highest in Assam. Clearly, many of these things are also linked with the nutrition deficiency in our diet. And unfortunately, we have not realized that most of the answers are lying within our reach. We may not have enough money to go to the market to buy some uh, nutrition-related products from the market, but we do have the forest and the local paddy field around where we can get some of the most nutritious herbs and vegetables from. So, therefore, what we did was help school children set up school nutrition garden. This was way back in 2011 help them set up nutrition garden and this nutrition garden, we were cognizant of the fact that we want them to look at an entrepreneurship model. We want them to use local resources. So instead of giving money to these young people to employ somebody to help them in the garden, instead of buying seeds for them, we said, why don't you resource your products and all the help that you need from the local community? So these school children go to the local community, do a Bejdan Yatra, collect local seeds and saplings, bring it back and then grow it in their own school nutrition garden. So they are, of course, using the local product and encouraging the local crops, local varieties of herbs and vegetables to grow in their garden. But at the same time, there's this beautiful incident that I have been sharing with many people but still inspires me is that in, we were attending one of the parents orientation and one of the mother came up to us and said thank you sir for doing such an amazing program with our children you know my daughter is now consuming peter God karela in her food and we were taken aback like i am a father and a parent i know the children and vegetables are usually North pole and South pole, they do not come together. And bitter gourd do not exist in their universe. I mean, not even in their multiverse. Yeah, not just one universe. <laughs> so here, this eleven-year-old child was happily eating karela in her lunch. So we went up to that girl and asked her. We heard that you are eating bitter gourd. That's fantastic. How did this happen? And the girl very easily said, "No, oh, this is the vegetable that I have grown." So you see no amount of lectures on nutrition behavior will induce such change. This is coming out from their own experience of growing something, you know, and that's how the ownership around food and vegetables are built. So nutrition is one major factor for us in the school nutrition garden. The second part, we are also cognizant of the fact that with good health, you also need good education in the school. And therefore we have positioned the school nutrition garden as an open science and mathematics laboratory for children to learn science, math, of course language also from each and every activity that they do. Right from picking up tools, gardening tools, talking about physics within that. Why some equipments have tools have long handle, why some tools have shorter handle, there's beautiful, amazing physics chapter in that. Of course Picking the land for your farm is also very, very important. There are important science chapters in, involved in that. And they will, you and I, I don't know how many times we have uh, memorized the formula for perimeter, but we have never maybe used it, right? But here, children are not memorizing the formula for perimeter. They are using it because they need these formulas for fencing their school nutrition garden. Yeah, setting up their raised bed for nutrition garden. So learning science and math. So that's one big agenda for our school nutrition garden. Third aspect is that this is a first and exposure for these young people to earn some money from Agri Enterprise, which is their school nutrition garden. They prepare vermicompost, So these composts are bought by their parents, bought by the community members, and also bought by the teachers themselves many of these vegetables are bought by the teachers the community members of course it is supplied to the midday meal scheme that they eat in their school so nutrition education and entrepreneurship these three combined gives them a starting point for thinking about agri entrepreneurship but also at the same time we are cognizant of the fact that we need to create an enabling environment around these young people also so therefore engaging with their mothers, engaging with their parents, engaging with the community on agri entrepreneurship spaces and opportunities. So we have cadres of Pasusaki by those. We have cadres of solar by those of solar sakis. We have cadres of fish sakis. These mothers and parents have been encouraging community members to adopt not just diversified income opportunity through livestock management, through crops management, also through using renewable energy solutions, but also creating a sustainable and ecologically sensitive uh, livelihood options around the community So the community itself then becomes a model for young people to look up to that, yes. I can see my parents doing some wonderful work. I can see my uncle doing some wonderful work picking up agri entrepreneurship. So I will also take this a notch higher up. So that's how you build an aspiration, career aspiration. Young people need to get exposed to such amazing work being done. and And having said that, they will the beautiful thing is we didn't have to start from the scratch. We just have to, Build linkages. You know, the agriculture practices that we are promoting in schools have been practiced for centuries by our community. It's just that bring that back inside the school. There are wonderful organizations, even government agencies, doing amazing work around livelihood. You know, so bringing that together, weave it in such a beautiful way that, you know, everything makes sense, presenting a very big, beautiful, coherent picture enabling environment for youngsters to see and aspire for an agri-entrepreneurship career. And I think that's probably the answer to the climate change that we are seeing. That's probably the answer toward the migration pattern that we see, migration, not just the climate refugees, but also migrating because of economic reasons. There are more reasons now to stay back and grow, not just economically, but also as a society, we are growing and being proud of our heritage and, you know, traditional resources that we have and work on that. And, you know, when more and more young people join in, I think more innovations happen. More and more young people join in into a process, I think more democratized, the process becomes. And many more leaders you will start seeing. You know, there will be many more duties there will be many more NESPAs, many more farm to food, many more thousands of organizations because these young people are excited. I think that's what farm to food has been trying to do.
1: No, no, thank you, Deep. And like you were saying, while the name is farm to food. You've clearly touched upon youth mobilization, nutrition, STEM, entrepreneurship, engaging the community, climate change, diversity, where what one school does is actually quite different than what happens in another school. And so, if you can just give us a sense of how many schools you're in, what are sort of your aspirations, that would be great.
0: Like you said, one school would be very different from the other school because one school is located in a particular community, the school nutrition garden will be shaped and colored by the local community's knowledge and practices. So we started off with about 15 schools way back in 2011. And slowly, slowly, we directly expanded to almost about 200, 300 schools where we were directly going and working. And then we realized that that's very emphasis to our philosophy of diversification or empty to our philosophy of integrating the local culture and local practices into the farming. And therefore what we have started doing is then inspire organizations, agencies to look at the model, adopt it in their local and localize in their, into their local customs, local practices. Uh, agriculture, agroecology practices, and then run it. So far, we have been running this school nutrition garden program or what we call farmpreneur program are being run in almost six states across the country, apart from the Northeast region. And all of them are working in school and all of them are working in government schools. All of them are working in partnership with the local community where the local community and students and the school have come together to run the school nutrition garden. We were very fortunate that the Assam government adopted the school nutrition garden program way back in 2016. And in 2019, we were invited for a Chintan Baithat, Chintan Sabha. At MHRD, it was Ministry of Human Resource Development at that point of time. Uh, we presented our farm to our school nutrition garden program, and then in 2020, just before the lockdown happened, Government of India adopted this policy of school nutrition garden, and they have notified all the school that mm-hmm. serves midday meal to ensure that they have the school nutrition garden in the school also. So this practice is going across the country right now. So 1.2 million schools are running this school nutrition garden program across the country. It's beautiful. Each school has their own beautiful ways of engaging. It has its own beautiful color and composition.
1: It's amazing, given that you're working across the country and most of our country is still very agriculture focused and farming is a livelihood. I think there are many other components to this but when scale happens to that level and you were even speaking about your own experiences of sort of going into 2 to 300 schools how do you ensure sort of the soul remains in your program and in the programs that are sort of occurring across you know a million plus schools
0: i think that's a very very pertinent question that you have put up and when you scale which very scary uh, term <laughs> because uh, while scaling It's very difficult to maintain the original soul of the program. What we have been doing is that we have developed a basic, very, very simple framework. And wherever whoever picks up the framework, we ask them to use the framework, but use the local contextual knowledge. The moment there is partnership with local farmers, There's partnership with local community. It automatically develops its own soul. So the soul may not be a Northeast soul. The soul will be Maharashtrian soul. The soul will be Uttarakhand soul, a Punjab soul, a a Karnataka-based program or nutrition garden will have the soul and the culture and ethos of local practice and traditional know-how of what is grown, the agroecology practices of Karnataka, you know, I think there are amazing organizations across the country and agencies across the country who are doing some wonderful work. What needs to be done is to link up with them encourage organizations working on livelihood and agriculture in and around your school to come and facilitate the setting up of school nutrition, program. rather than farm to food, stop going and doing the training let the local people do the training let the local agencies do the training and that will help build the soul of the program you know instead of copy pasting everything In
1: Jesus name, amen. i think that kind of brings us to then the rebuild india fund which is i think the same sort of principles of the realization we have phenomenal, small, localized organizations that exist across the country and certain solutions cannot be cookie cutter approach, especially in even a region, which I believe is about five crores, which is again, the seven states of the Northeast. And if we're talking about a population of five crores, when we're looking at, you know, over 200 tribes and languages and whatnot spoken, It is very, very different. And then when we think about the 1.4 billion people we have across the country, and the beautiful sort of pluralistic society that we currently live in, the premise of Rebuild, I would love for you to actually share with the listeners and what excited you about it, why are you on the investment committee, and what are things that are being done differently, I guess, that you haven't seen in your sort of 20 plus years of being in
0: the NGO sector. You know why I was excited about Rebuild India was that it talked about bringing back the people into the center, bringing back the community into the center, bringing back those leaders who are located deep inside Imphal, you know, bordering Myanmar. Bring out those leaders, leaders from Karnataka who are working with Devdasi, who herself has been through that Devdasi tradition and has come out, inspire them, celebrate them, celebrate these leaders who have gone through certain experiences, leaders who are close to the issues that they have been working with, and also working with communities that are very, very distant, very remote, and also in a very, very vulnerable space. And also giving the choice to the leader that, hey, I know that you're working in a Difficult circumstances, you're working with a very vulnerable group of people. So, what kind of support you need? What kind of help you would need? What kind of program you, would you like to run? You know, giving that choice is the differentiating factor at Rebuild India. The other factor is that it is not just these local leaders who are deciding what they will do with the fund. But it's also some of these local leaders who have gone through certain experiences, who are working with marginalized communities. So these local civil society leaders are the ones who are making the decisions of whom this fund should go. Right, rather than somebody sitting, somebody from the donor agency sitting and deciding oh, this fund should go to ABC organization, not to XYZ organization. Has better infrastructure or better social media presence, or the leader can speak in English. You know, more communicative, more articulate. But it's the leader in from the grassroots who knows that there are some amazing work going on at the grassroots level, but they may not be the most articulate one. So I think that democratization, the selection process, democratization of how to use the fund. All this will, what I believe, is, will lead into rebuilding a new narrative of how we want to grow, how we want to develop our community, our society, and our country. That's why, you know, when I was presented with the idea of being part of Rebuild India, I said, yes, this is an opportunity to create a new narrative and rebuild our country in a more democratic, pluralistic, and diversified approach.
1: It would also be interesting just for the group to understand how are funding decisions made within Rebuild? Who's on the investment committee? How do you all interact? What
0: are some of the areas you think have gone well? How we operate is there are organizations who have been working with, let's say, 100 of organizations, smaller grassroots organizations. So these nodal organizations then refer some of the amazing work that is going on, and these organizations are then picked up by the Rebuild India team. And again, at Rebuild India team, the focus is not on you know on the proposal itself. The focus is on the LCV, the leader. Who's the leader of this organization? Which kind of community is it working? And the vulnerability index of the community or the issue that the organization is working on. So based on that, the decisions are made not based on how well you have written the proposal not based on how well your metrics are how good your numbers look like you know you were there in in file meeting when people were asking you know do you have a format for proposals and then you said no they were like perplexed and then looking at me and in fact some of them came to me during the tea break and lunch break do we actually not need to submit any proposal you know they were like can you share some structure format for proposal? I said, No proposal, Baba. <laughs> You're doing amazing work. That itself is a proposal. You know, the amazing work is that we want to work with you. That's our proposal, rather than you giving us the proposal. <laughs> so we are proposing to you. Can we work with you? <laughs> That's how Rebuild India operates. Once a data of list of these organizations and of course there are certain process checks happen, and once these data and these information comes to us. So we at the investment committee, we are five of us from different organizations working with them, diverse experiences. So we have a friend Deepa Pawar. She runs this amazing organization called Anubhuti Trust. She is from NTDNT community. Then we have. Nanvita from Martha Perel Foundation. She has amazing experience of working with women and women rights, and of course, also organizational development. We have Anita from Goons. Goons has been working for, I think, several decades on relief and rehabilitation. And for them, in fact, Goons is a pioneer organization in ensuring that when the relief approach is not a dehumanizing experience really becomes a humanizing experiences for people who are receiving as well as people who are giving it. so anita from goonj is there ramiz who is working with amazing lot of organizations through catalyst 2030 and has excellent and very inspiring experiences of you know engaging with grassroots level organizations so all these people we come together we come together not to say no to any organization, but we come together to say how well can we engage with these organizations? Because we have certain experiences, we know what are the challenges these organizations may may be. So how well probably they can use this opportunity? And how well can ReBuild India engage with these organizations?
1: Thank you, Deep. And I think, you know, as we think about again, these organizations, and as you mentioned, the lived experiences that these NGO leaders have had and how we feel that is the strongest sense of an individual's character, the integrity of the organization, and of course, going to other organizations who have worked with these entities, it's far better than a proposal. And and I guess with that, what, what were your lived experiences? How did you get into the NGO sector you grew up in the Northeast, you traveled quite a bit because your father worked with government. If you can shed some light onto that, that would be fantastic.
0: So they will, my father was one of the first person to come out from his community and go for higher education. My grandfather was very unhappy because my grandfather wanted my father to stay back in the village and take care of the agriculture. I think I was fortunate that my father was a doctor and he was working with central government. So I got exposure to certain privileges in the region. I was born in Arunachal in this beautiful place called Bombilla, which is near Tawang. And I studied in Arunachal for some time and also studied in Assam for some time later on, Bengal and Delhi and Mumbai later on. But during our growing up period in 80s and 90s, the region was going through a difficult phase. It was a tough time for any young person to be young. There were ethnic classes happening, there were separatist movement going on, and because of which our education got hampered, and many of us were probably not looking beyond beyond probably five, six years, or most probably a couple of years ahead. We were not looking at, you know, what will be our career aspirations. We were probably not looking at, you know, to become a doctor or engineer or, you nurse know, such fancy job. We were looking at, you know, what is the need of the hour of our community and of our society. And I had an opportunity to experience people's movement down there in Madhya Pradesh, with Narmada Bachao Andolan, and also NTT Dam with Sundarlal Bahugunaji, and at Narmadabha I realized that even out there, there was big people's movement going on. There were people who were asking for the change, people who were confronting the system in order to change how it is, you know, similar to what we were doing in Assam or in the northeastern region. But the approach was completely different. Here, The protest was against the system, not against a human being. And the entire engagement, when you're protesting, you are keeping that the values of peace, the values of humanity in your, you know, approach. So there were always spaces created for dialogue, meaningful dialogue, meaningful engagement. And that's how I realize that it is important to have your goal, which is your identity, your culture, your tradition. To achieve that, what is more important is the path that one takes. I'll use an example. These days, Teerth yatra are happening quite regularly. You know, tirth yatra, a person evolves not because he or she has reached the Teerth, a person evolved because he or she has undertaken that journey, that yatra. That's the yatra where lots of introspection can happen. And once introspection and reflection happen, then the change starts happening. You know, that's how I realized. And also, of course, I had an opportunity to work with fantastic organizations like Kava and Committee and Beautiful Committee where I realized that. To, There's the need for engaging with young people. And all these experiences brought me back to Assam, where I said, I want to engage with young people, but I want to take the community along. I want to take the young people along. Just like in Rebuild India, the process of choosing should be left to the community, should be left to this young person. This young person will decide how she or he would like to set up her garden based on his or her assessment of the situation, you know, and it is a community that will guide rather than I bring in my agriculture expertise and telling them how to grow and what to grow. It is the community which is guiding and inspiring and mentoring the young person to identify the process of growing and taking care of the entire project. So rather than me, I think the solution lies out there solution are with people. And I realize that farm to food, we do not want to reinvent the same wheel by doing livelihood training program. We want to partner with organizations who are doing livelihood. So we have partnership with Goat Trust who are doing Pasu Sakhi training for us in our community. We have partners like Barefoot College who are helping us develop the Solar Saki program for us here. We have partnership with Community the Youth Collective who's helping us to take young people through a certain journey. So instead of us bringing in everything under the sun, we are bringing this relationship back into this partnership. And that's how community also sees that, you know, one day there is farm to food team member, there is a barefoot college team member, there is a Go trust team member. So many people are coming together to do this work. So similarly community also then comes together to do we have the tea garden community we have the missing community we have the sms community we have the muslim community the bodo community everybody is coming together to do to work together and i think somewhere down the line i probably this will bring back the the leadership back into the hand of each and everyone around us each and everyone in the community i think that's the important thing that we are trying to do. And that's how our young leaders will start believing in themselves and start to have pride in their own uh, local cultures and traditions and heritage and the practices of agroecological practices that we have been going through.
1: No, no, thank you. And I think in hearing you speak about, you know, the partnership approach and trusting the community and realizing there's so many different communities that exist, and I think even the visit that we made, and I'm excited to do many, many more visits to learn more about the region. I'm reminded of a of a U2 song called Invisible. Towards the end of that song, they have a chorus, which is, there is no them, there is
0: no them, there is only us. Very true, very true. It's all us, we are all in it together, you know. I might say that, oh, I stay in a concrete building. I, am not, I don't care about people who are facing the flood water in the villages. But you know, sooner or later, that water will come to my place also. And I'm, my food system will also get impacted by it. So everything is related to each other, you know. I learned at least on my trip, la la. <laughs> uh, la
1: la la, La la, excuse me. Especially the world we live in, um, slow food, slow fashion, slow development is also required, which doesn't mean lazy or having a sense of urgency. It means more sustainability.
0: That's the philosophy of nature. Everything will surely happen, but slowly, slowly. Because when you go slowly, you're also giving space to everything around you to grow. So if you want to grow, you have to grow together. And to grow together, you have to go lahe
1: Thank you so much, Deep, for sharing your time with us, with sharing your insights, for caring so much for the communities that you serve. Uh, And I think we have a lot to learn and a lot to change after listening to you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our work, our work of any of the guests or the Rebuild India Fund, please go to our website, dasra.org forward slash NCE, where we've got show notes, links, and much, much more. Dustra Philanthropy Week returns February 26th to March 1st. It'll be a mix of amazing speakers across three cities, Mumbai, Delhi, and Bangalore, and of course, streaming online for all our global participants and supporters. For more information, go to dustrepphilanthropyweek.org. No cost extension is produced by the amazing Vaca Media.